Hello and welcome to Talking Law. I'm Sally Penny MBE, a barrister at Kenworthy Chambers in Manchester. I'm also the Joint Vice Chair of the Association of Women Barristers and the founder of Women in the Law UK. On this podcast, you'll hear leading barristers, judges, solicitors, managing partners and more talk about their lives and careers within the legal sector. Today I'm talking law with Dr. Leroy Logan, MBE, a former superintendent in the Metropolitan Police and recent keynote speaker at the Bar Council's Race Summit. Leroy is one of the UK's most highly decorated black police officers. He's also a former chair and founding member of the Black Police Association and believes that there is still much work to do in creating a more equitable and fair criminal justice system. I began our interview by asking Leroy about his upbringing and career path into policing. I was born in Islington and grew up there and a few years in Jamaica as a youngster. And then I um, finished my education in Hackney, where I did my A-levels and then went on to do my degree in University of East London. So, you know, London, born and bred. And I thought my life in science research was charted out until the calling of policing sort of uh, caught me on the blind side. And I joined in 1983, where I did 30 years, more or less in the north side of the Met and um, hit a central London, northeast went all over in terms of surveillance work. But uh, the, I suppose the, the main thing I was uh, heavily involved in in, in the uh, latter stages of my 30 years was setting up the Black Police Association, not just London, but in nationally. I was the first chair of the National BPA, and then uh, I was the London chair for a few years. And operationally, I, I was fortunate to be uh, involved in extensive uh, inquiries, the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, the Damalola Taylor investigation, and various other homicide um, investigations. And I was fortunate to finish my career off on the Olympic security team for the 2012 Games, where it was a life-changing experience, which gave me a real understanding of, the, you know, Team GB, I'm not just talking about the athletes, but people across the country coming together and making it a, a memorable games and still living the legacy because I still live in that area in, yes. in East London and I'm still involved in advocacy and activism work. And, and I suppose the main thing since I, I retired in 2013 has been the my autobiography, Closing Ranks, My Life as a Cop, yeah. And leading on to the film by Steve McQueen called Red, White and Blue, where John Boyega played me. So, um, yeah, I'm living on that crest of a wave, part of the Small Axe family. And uh, it, it's given me so many opportunities. It's been life changing. So, um, yeah. yeah, I'm a rejuvenated man. Wow. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll come to uh, rejuvenation and well-being a bit later on, if I may. Um, I, I watched the series by Steve McQueen, which was celebrating black um, history. Uh, and your story, as most people 
the nation will have watched um, was a powerful one. I don't want to tell your story through myself, but I wonder if you can just tell us really how that came about, that your life as a police officer then was made into a drama, a rather successful drama, uh, an award-winning one. Why you felt that story was so important? Well, I was in the process of writing my autobiography. In fact, I've been writing it for uh, since 2010, when I knew I was going to be leaving after the Olympic Games. Um, it was part of my exit strategy, trying to make sense of what happened the previous 20-odd years <laughs> and saying, where's the legacy? Where's the next steps? And uh, around 2015, I was approached by a journalist who I used to work with. Uh, she used to be part of the BBC. Her name is Helen Bart. And I worked with her, especially when I was chair of the Black Police Association, um, various issues that were in the media. And she, she had got, left the BBC by 2015 and she was doing some freelance work. She said, Leroy, I know your story. Um, and I really believe someone who could make a film out of it, but I need you to dictate that story to me, which, which I did because uh, I know her and I trusted her. And um, she went away a few months later in, in 2016. She said, oh, that tape has come to the attention of Steve McQueen. And I said, Steve McQueen, 12 years a slave. Steve McQueen just won the Oscar. She said, yeah, yeah. He's really interested in um, looking at uh, it being part of a series. And it didn't have a name at the time, but it was a, a series that was going to be on BBC. And I said, wow. That, that, that's amazing. So I met Steve later that, that year, around the spring of 2016, and we got on really well. I, I didn't want to take it for granted that um, my story was going to be that well known, because at the time when they, they were looking at it, they weren't going to have my actual name. They would be fictitious names. But I, I helped out with the script, um, working with Steve and Courtier Newland, who was the other script writer. And I was really pleased to be involved behind the scenes in that way. And, and that took us through 2017, 2018. And then the filming started. So I was involved in a bit of pre-production work and going on, on, on set in yeah. sunny Wolverhampton, uh, <laughs> where, where it was filmed. Because there's not many buildings in London that is still dated from that time period they, they, they each of the small acts episodes wanted to be um spanning between 60s and the 80s yeah and so each one was in that that scope of the 60s and 80s of caribbean people who have um done things that have been seen as uh significant and so it but it was so surreal seeing john boyega um not only wanted to play me, but actually acting like me, talking like me, walking like me. And uh, yeah, and, and it's only when I went on the set and I noticed the script and it said, Leroy said, and Lee said, and, and I thought, hold on here. Um, that's, you use my name? He said, yeah, yeah, didn't we tell you we're, we're going to use your name? And that's what I knew it was going to be really significant. And um, yeah, the, the production went out in um, November 2020. And I released my book, my autobiography, Closing Ranks, uh, a couple of months before then, because uh, how it just seemed to work 
yes. in unison. And um, yeah, the, the, the rest is history. Uh, I am um, really pleased how it, it was accepted by the community of all backgrounds and experiences. And I know not just my episode, Red, White, and Blue, but Lovers Rock, Mangrove, Education, yeah. and Alex Wheatle. And, it, and it's been, uh, again, a, a life-changing experience, which uh, I'm, I'm still sort of pinching myself to say if it was, it was all a dream, whatever. But no, it, it's, it's open doors. You know, the book and the film have opened doors where I don't think I would normally have those opportunities. So I, I'm really embracing it, uh, making the most of it. And hopefully it will build, you know, the future 2022 and onwards. Yeah. Well, th that's kind of all about you. But a spoiler alert coming up. I wonder if you can share then with me for those who haven't seen um, that particular episode, who haven't read the book like I have, you know, in just preparation and research, who don't follow you on Twitter uh, or LinkedIn. Can you just summarise what it was like to join the police force? What is your story? Well, I, I suppose um, local lad, really thinking, well, I'm going to be a scientist because, um, you know, my, my parents were very strict on me to get a good education and have a clear objective in life. So science, my, my, my parents really loved science as well. So that was a no-brainer, really. Yeah. So once I finished uni uh, and I got a job at the Royal Free Hospital as a research scientist, I thought that was it. Um, but that was the um, 80 to 83. Um, during that time, there was the um, Brixton riots and the Scarman report was published in 82. And they were talking about um, a reflective police service. And I must admit, I, I didn't even resonate with it. And I couldn't really identify with it. It was just while I was at the, the, the Royal Free Officers from the Hampstead Police Station used to use our sports facilities. I didn't know there were police officers at the time. Uh, I'll just meet them in the gym or the pool or whatever, but and in the bar. And and after a few few months uh, of getting to know them, they identify themselves as police officers, and they started convincing me that I'd be police material. I thought, wow, do I look like a racist thug? <laughs> That's how I saw it. But they kept banging on about, you know, uh, you know, we need. People like you, you'd be a good officer. You know, not only you've got the intellect for it, but, you know, you're physically fit and all that sort of stuff. I said, listen, I know you're, you're trying to do. You must be supporting part of the recruiting campaign. Uh, but it, it, it did sort of um, plant a seed in my mind's eye. And I thought, wow, you know, is this something I could do? Uh, and then a couple of people close to me, my boss and my best friend's mother, Jessie Stevens, who was a community liaison officer. Yes. Uh, I was sharing with her that, uh, you know, these guys are approaching me about joining police and she said, yeah, yeah, because she'd been working with police during that turbulent time of the Brixton riots and, um, and and everything that came out of Scarman. And she said, well, I can't see you as a research scientist for the next 30 years, but I can see you as a police officer. I said, mum, that, you know, Jesse, Aunt Jesse, that is not what I want because I know that my, you know, my, my identification of policing in the UK at the time was not good. I'd been in Jamaica and I've seen black cops, so I could relate more to the black cops in Jamaica than just over here. And then um, my boss, Roy Pounder, the consultant, a professor of gastroenterology, he said, 
Leroy, I really think you could do something as remarkable as join the police. And um, he said he'd keep the job open for me if it doesn't work out. And, um, and so I did put in an application. And so those officers were really pleased I did it. And, uh, but while I was in the application process, my father was badly beaten up by police officers over a traffic matter. And I just couldn't understand why they would do that. Yeah. Uh, he was in his late 50s. He was a hardworking man, very law-abiding. Um, but, he, you know, he, he would always want to know why he'd been stopped. And if he had to go to court, he would fight his case. I, I think he was a, a, a frustrated lawyer, actually, because yeah. <laughs> he'd always go not guilty and fight his case in the court. But, yeah, unfortunately, they laid into him and badly... Uh, beat him up and so you can imagine uh, the last thing I wanted to do join the ranks of the officers who beat him up yes. um, but you know uh, my wife who was my fiance at the time Gretel said well maybe that's the reason why you should join and then when the boss was saying the same thing Aunt Jessie was saying the same thing and it was just doing my head in um, and I was really questioning my sanity as I was going through this process and then my dad found out I was, I was doing it and uh, just like in a film it went down really badly. Mm. Uh, but I, I don't know, that calling, that vision of being in the organisation to make change from within just just kept resonating and I had to respond. And it was taking me out of my comfort zone from a great world of science. I was going against my father's wishes because he wanted me to be a scientist. And, and of course, him being a victim of police beating yeah. was not... <laughs> you know, it was the worst case scenario... Um, all right, he, he did uh, successfully sue the police for unlawful arrest and excessive force. But all the same, the last thing he wanted was his son to join the ranks of those officers. But, yeah, I pursued it. And, um, yeah, it, it was um, – I was questioning my sanity for the first 10 years. I was thinking, why would I leave my comfort zone into quite a, a toxic, hostile environment where I was getting criticism from the community as well as criticism from my colleagues – so I was between the rock and a hard place, but um, I pushed through and um, fortunately, history speaks for itself. Yes. And you've been involved in, you already mentioned it, you know, um, McPherson Report, Scarman, actively trying to make impact and changes in the police force um, and then setting up, uh, founding the Black Police Association, which you chaired for 30 years. Um, so you have made um, change. I'm just wondering on, on reflection, would you repeat that career path? You know, lots of young people will be listening and probably have seen the film or be Googling you now or whatever. But would you repeat that whole career or do you think you would have stayed in, in science? Yeah, I, well, the, the first line of my book actually says that um, your worst nightmare could be your biggest breakthrough. And I, I realized it was the worst case scenario. I, it wasn't going to be easy. It's going to be really tough. And, but I think the learning lesson is if you have that calling and it's something that has to, you have to dig deep. Don't, don't dismiss it because it's going to be the, the worst case scenario. Just, just stick with it. Um, you need to have a, a real clarity of what you're trying to do. And I knew that. I wanted to make changes from within. I wasn't totally clear how I would do it. And um, the as I said, the first 10 years of grappling with these issues on my own from training school to say, listen, I'm here to make changes. 
and being seen as a bit of a troublemaker for, for saying that and standing up for other people, including myself, especially around issues of race and equality. It was clear to me that um, I had to dig deep. My faith was a real resilience to keep strong in my, in, in my principles and values and keep uh, focus on the vision. I, I'm really driven by um, visions. You know, if I can see it, I can do it. So I, I was really pleased that um, there was so much opportunity there if I just really followed my dream, um, even though at times it was my worst nightmare. But yeah, yeah I, 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 and then obviously it all made sense when I um, came together with the founder members of the Black Police Association and discovered that we can make changes from within um, having our own platform and uh, as a result of that we set our own template to make change around race equality and inclusion and, and the wider diversity piece and seeing how our impact was almost immediate when we um, set up in officially launched 94 and I became a member. In fact, I've, I've been a member for 30 years. I was in the chair for 30 years. But being a founder member um, from those early days, 30 years ago, it, it is something that I'm, I take pride in. You know, a lot of people might think, oh, well, certain things you did has been eroded back since McPherson and, and giving evidence at the McPherson inquiry. But I know there's certain things that's still there. And the fact that the Black Peace Association is still there 30 years later. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and not just in London, but right across the country, there's a national uh, association. So for me, the legacy is there. And, and it doesn't matter what, if people want to accept institutional racism or not, uh, even though the, the evidence is clear that uh, it's still there, even though the commissioner might say it's not there, but the, the changes are still being made it really gives me hope that, you know, we really can deal with these issues once and for all. And I truly believe improve the lives of future generations. Yes. Well, I was going to come to that because my profession at the bar, people, uh, very rarely pupils or trainees come to become barristers who were police officers. We do sometimes see them, sometimes yeah, yeah. who are uh, doctors. And, and so for young people now who might be thinking about their own careers, either in policing or in the Met, um, and of course, uh, as in the legal sector, like me, I just wondered, kind of looking again back at your experience and your own career path, whether you had some advice about resilience persistent you know we're coming through covid it's been absolutely dire for all but particularly for young people who've been affected in so many ways and so my question i suppose perhaps is about mental health and resilience any advice you would have for young people who are entering the legal profession um at this stage well i think the more information you have about the profession you want to take on or the arena in which you are going to operate in, uh, the more information, the better. Uh, and um, I, I must admit, the, the way in which I looked at it is, even though it might be tough, but if you've got a clear vision of what you need to do, um, don't be derailed by personalities or prejudices. Um, have a, you know, an understanding of the, the, the path that you're going to walk along 
you'll need people with you, so you need support. And, and take wise counsel from people who can give you as much clarity. And that's why Jessie Stevens was so brilliant, because she'd worked with police and she knew the, the importance of bridge building and reducing barriers. So I, I was feeding off her and because I, I was also a local person, I knew that I was a public servant. Yes. So being a servant leader was, again, in line with my faith and, and wanting to keep a clarity uh, and, and consistency on next steps uh, and, and not to be uh, discouraged. Sometimes you'd be disappointed, but not to be discouraged and, and, and keep, keep going. And we all know that sometimes you have to make severe and significant sacrifices. But if you've got uh, an understanding of your objective, what's, you know, you keep your eye on the prize and, and you can see other people doing it and having great role models and mentors, you can keep, you know, that, that momentum. And uh, I must admit, all of these things, all these moving parts really helps to strengthen you. For me, my family was critical in all of that. So you can't do these things in isolation. You, no. you need to have good, strong fellowship and real clarity of purpose and being intentional. I know it can sometimes be tough being self-motivated and, you know, but I, I suppose we, we have to dig deeper if we find that we are switching off and, and and not getting the breakthroughs, you know, sometimes it's no pain, no gain. So you have to be um, going through the tough times before you, you really get the harvest of all of that. Thank you. That's such, such I'm writing it down because I need it. In, in, <laughs> in, 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 uh, Blira, I want to talk about sort of a bit of uh, positivity, if I may, because otherwise I'll start talking about the recent report into the Met. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, and so that will depress us all, and I'll be talking about the sad um, Sarah Everett and various other things. But I wanted to talk about a bit of positivity here, if if I may, and ask you about any advice, perhaps, that you might have for lawyers looking back at your career, uh, and indeed, if you had a favourite fictional lawyer. A <laughs> <laughs> um, favourite fictional lawyer. When I was a youngster. Uh, I think it was Lionel Barrymore, Lionel Barrymore, something like that. He was an American lawyer and um, always won his case. You know, he, ne he never lost. So, the, but, but yeah, it was a fictional character in, in an American law setting. And I suppose they're a bit more brash and, you know, their protocols are totally different to ours. Yes. But since, but since um, you know, I, 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 I've uh, seen barristers over here, I, I mean, Having worked with Mike Mansfield on um, McPherson and there was um, work around a witch hunt against the, the Black Police Association by um, our colleagues at the time and one of my members was taken to the Old Bailey. Um, his name was Ali Desai and, uh, you know, we hinged on the cornerstone of British law is innocent until proven guilty. And, and we supported him and worked with Mike on that as well. So, you know, he, he, he sort of uh, was the one I was closest to. And also Matthew Ryder, 
because when when the Met was investigating me, um, my my QC was was Matthew, and my solicitor was Sadiq Khan, the the current um, mayor of London. So um, you know, I, I was fortunate to work with some um, really remarkable um, people. I've even worked with Arlene Small. She's a uh, QC on in family law. Um, yeah, so over the years, I've really had the opportunity to, to um, you know, rub shoulders with really amazing people. And just to say about um, police officers who then become lawyers, um, I don't know if you know Guy Scotland. Um, guy, guy um, he was in a Met and then he went to British Transport Police and then he became a lawyer quite late on in his, in his career. And I know um, he might not be practicing at the moment, but yeah. I, I always admire him for making that step because, uh, you know, again, he was involved in the struggle for equality and justice in the Met and, and the, the police service across the country um, through the national BPA as well. Yes. And uh, in fact, we're neighbours, you know, we live in oh, East wow. London together. So, uh, you know, I see him from time to time. Yes. Um, Did you so fancy the jump, the jump across? Did you fancy either becoming a solicitor or being a barrister as the advocate as I am or, or indeed politics which some lawyers do I mean I've got no interest in politics but yeah yeah I I, I, I I toyed with the idea of, of making the jump um but I suppose it was the amount of things I was doing uh, I had a real interest in and uh, I was getting the sort of uh, breakthroughs that I saw was encouraging to continue that I, I, I didn't actually make it but um and politics uh, you know i told the idea of uh, uh taking on uh, uh another public role um but uh, to be quite honest I, I i think i'm destined just to work locally with people um i'm doing i'd still uh live in uh north east london i'm still involved in charity work one of the charities i set up 20 years ago called um it was the BPA Charitable Trust initially. It's now called Void Youth, and it's based in Hackney. And, um, you know, we're doing a lot of work uh, with young people around safety and security and, and buying into the communities. In fact, we have a, a BTEC Level 2 programme called Young Leaders for Safer Cities, and they, they get actual UCAS points at year nine before they start their GCSEs, year 10, 11. We're developing a programme now called young leaders for sustainable cities. So it's taking in the wider issues around communities and um, being environmentally friendly and sustainable um, communities. So we, wow. we, we, we're trying to keep our focus on young people empowering themselves and know they can change their environment and not become a victim of it by knowing their rights and responsibilities and what they can assist their community with. Wow, that's really, really impressive. So tell me, I know you've written your own book, but I want to know, you know, what's your favourite book? It needn't be about law, you know, because I'd like to find out what you do for your well-being and perhaps to relax. I suppose when I was um, starting my autobiography, as I said, it was a labour of love starting from 2010 and it didn't get published until 10 years later. Uh, but when I was looking at different writing styles and I could really identify with, Obama's um, Audacity of Hope. Yeah. Uh, Barack Obama, how he wrote that um, that personal journey, and how he was then taking on uh, public office as a senator, etc. It was um, 
clear to me. You know, he, he gave so many signposts for resilience, for leadership, ethical leadership, for being a servant leader. He didn't use those terms as such, but, you know, this, that's what I got out of it. You know, that sort of gentle warrior, you need to have that strength of character to stand firm and not allow yourself to be derailed by individuals or, or, or incidences. Um, so, yeah, I, I really loved that book. I, I mean, I really thumbed through that book. It gave me a real understanding of, of how to chart your course. And then I, I remember um, um, someone who recently died, Sidney Poitier. Yes. Um, he wrote a very small book around being a father, the value of a man, something like that, something about a man. I think it's the value of a man. The, or the, the, it, it, it's, it's a very small book, but it, it's so relevant uh, around you as a, a man and what you need to understand. Sorry, the legacy of a man, that's right. The legacy of a man. And a lot of that is around your family and the relationship you've got with your your family and understanding the importance of sticking with it. You might have your peaks and troughs, but you can't just jump ship uh, at the slightest thing. You know, we, we're in this very sort of um, quick win culture. If you don't have a quick win, then obviously it's not worth it and you move on. But sometimes you have to dig deep and graft and it, it may take years. And yeah, that, that book really resonated uh, with me. And then obviously the writings of uh, Maya Angelou, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, it, yeah, yeah. It, those sort of amazing writers. And then what about well-being? Because um, I'm kind of just getting into your mindset. As I say, I've read your book, I've done a lot of research about you, but I'm thinking entering the police force at that time, not many black officers, difficult time in general, then having the mindset to set up something that was going to be impactful and legacy, then involved in various reports and investigations. How, how, how did you keep going? You, you know, how did you manage your well-being then? And how do you manage it now? Well, I think having the parents that I had was uh, a real blessing. I mean, I didn't really understand how blessed I was with the parents that I had until I became a police officer. Um, they gave a clarity of, of thinking, you know, that, you know, they've got fearing parents. So they, they, they consistently said, this is right, this is wrong. There was no gray area to confuse me. Um, they, they set clear boundaries for me. You know, you don't just, um, especially after school, you can't just run off and go and play and all that thing. You know, you've got chores to do. You take your sister. You, you make sure that you take off your uniform, hang them up properly, do your chores, and then wait for us to come in. And then, you know, because we were latchkey kids in those days. Yeah, so I think that discipline, and, you know, we were very modest means, so we weren't, uh, we were living it really tough. So yeah. I suppose that dogged determination was instilled in me just by seeing what my parents uh, did and how they responded now they kept going and they wouldn't allow people to um in any way uh, undermine them or, or derail them they, they just kept going and uh, and you you copy what you see you know when you've got parents who, who are your role models and and your inspiration and I suppose that's why my dad identified with me when he he realized that I was still going to join even though what had happened to him he did support me because 
he saw that strength of character, that conviction that he saw in himself. And he's, he's thinking, well, this young man means business. So, you know, don't, don't, <laughs> got to support him. Um, yeah. yeah. And I've done similar things with, with my family when I've seen that they really want to go down that road, but just be as supportive as possible. And then that in itself can encourage you and give you that validation and say you're on the right track and push it through. But I, I must admit, um, when I was getting a hard time in those early years yeah. in the police service, I couldn't complain to my dad because he would have said, we'll tell if we do it anyway. You know, you, he said, you force yourself in there, you deal with it. So I couldn't even complain to him. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I could complain to my, uh, to my wife at the time, Gretel, um, and Aunt Jessie, she was a real inspiration. She said, listen, even though you're getting a hard time for the community and your colleagues, stick to the, the, the objective and, and don't allow it to grind you down. So I think the, the family and, and, and the friends that I had just gave me that encouragement. I wasn't reliant on friends in the organisation because I had some really strong friendships from school, from college, in Hackney, you know, from uni, all these sort of places. So, you know, I, I, and just the, the just the camaraderie of youngsters in the seventies and eighties, where you know we, we, all, we all held together. You know, from the sixties, seventies, and eighties. That for me, that I'm, I'm trapped in that era, and 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 the music and everything that. For me, it just gave me so much encouragement. And I suppose it's all about timing as well. I, I, the timing of uh, when I joined, there were other black recruits um, because of the recruitment campaign from the Scarman Report. And it so happened, my best friend Lee from school, uh, he had started his um, musical career over here in the UK with his group called Imagination. And he went really big very quickly in, the, in that same time I was joining and he bought a house, literally five minutes walk from Hendon Training School. <laughs> and um, it was a godsend because I didn't, I hated the food in Hendon. I lost so much weight. And when he was in town, I, after doing the, the studies for the day, I would run up to his house and go and eat some proper food, you know, <laughs> and uh, enjoy it. Uh, and, I, and, and Steve McQueen um, highlighted that. I, I must admit, it really kept me grounded and say listen you know you're not a lot known your friends are still here for you they might not totally agree with you um they do now because that you know it's gone through the 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 decades and they've seen that i'm still the the determined person i've always been uh, as i say miserable as well but you know (laughs) but you know when you've got that focus of mind and determination you can come across as a bit a bit miserable and a bit dour you know he's a bit um always focused but that's the i suppose the 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 cost of being determined to push things through yes well you know leroy you touched on something there which was really interesting because one of the issues are having allies and having friends in our job and people say we don't need all these associations of you know i set up a women's organization it's not just for women We've got lots of male members. You know, you set up a, a black police officer, um, officers association. There are black uh, organisations for various different sectors. Uh, how important do you think having allies are? Was that important I- in your career? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I was really, uh, again, fortunate that one of my 
uh, first ally in in um, Hendon. He was the class captain. I was deputy class captain, and, and Tom Pearson was just absolutely amazing. He got me through Hendon as well. Um, Lee got me through the food and the cultural competence. Tom got me through the the logistics of being a really well turned out officer. He helped me um, really learn the the lines parafashion because I was used to it. When you know when you do a degree, you don't have to learn things parafashion. It's discuss this and explore that. Um, but Tom got my mind around learning things, you know, um, or being able to recite it or narrate it, in, you know, write it on paper, whatever it may be. And yeah, and he got me to pull up my shoes and iron my shirt. So he was an amazing ally. And he, you know, he, he was a, a white guy. And admittedly, his, um, his wife was from Germany. So I think that brought him out of just being very UK centric. So that allyship even got reignited since the film. You know, he got in touch through Twitter and it was, it was absolutely amazing, you know, when, when those sort of things happen, you know, they're life-changing. And so many other people came to, to, to my attention um, from the film and the book. So allyship, I think, is really important. I, I, I suppose even when we set up the Black Police Association, our assessment of black is not actually on colour. The, the actual definition is around the shared and common experience of people of African, African Caribbean and Asian origins. So you can be white and be a member. I mean, especially if you're in a, a mixed heritage relationship and you've got a, a mixed heritage son or daughter or children or whatever. And you can identify with what your children's going through or even your partner is going through. Yes. And so we, we, we knew that sort of allyship was critical and it's, in, it's still in our constitution now because we, we know the importance of um, people coming from different perspectives. Obviously, you might get the other saboteur or, or people even undermining what you're trying to do. Some even look like me, but, you know, you have to be able to see how they get to know what we're there for. It's a we and not a me. You can't put your personal agenda before the greater good. So it's around relationships. It's understanding that the wider uh, brief we got, the wider experience, the, the wider spectrum of people involved, it, it, it will really make such a difference. And it has. And I suppose that's why it's got the sustainability and, and the capacity to keep this, keep going for 30 years. And I suppose it, it then leads itself to the, the Black Lives Matter issue and, and how, again, to see um, young people, especially as, across the spectrum, culturally, uh, ethnicity, um, you know, their, their, their experiences uh, have been such a, I think it's really enhanced the impact they've had. And uh, getting private uh, and, and public sector organisations to rethink on so many fronts and I suppose the uh, book that was produced by Lenny Hendry and Matthew, sorry, Marcus Ryder, Matthew's brother, uh, around Black British Lives Matter. And I was able to uh, write the police perspective in that book of yeah. uh, 19 different authors. Uh, and, and that was published in November, right. just gone. Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 for me, allyship is critical. And, uh, and the wider the better. Yes. Yes. Alexandra Wilson's in that book. I, yeah. I love that book. So it's a, it's a great um, uh, anthropology, if you like. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, 
Marcus Ryder, of course, is not in law. Matthew is. Um, yeah. It's really good to, to see the cross section. Leroy, I'm coming to the end now of our time together, and I, I'm just I want to ask you two two things, if I may. One, what advice would you have to your um, 21 year old self? I've been writing a lot of books about careers and skills and so on. That you know, I didn't know anybody who was a barrister when I was starting out or police officer for that matter. And I just wonder if, you know, if you could just look back to your younger self, what would you have told that Leroy, um, 21 or younger? Um, uh, just to take a moment to, to reflect on it. And then I wanted to ask you what's next? You know, you've got an autobiography, we've got a film made by, you know, a, uh, an Oscar winning director. Um, you know, you've chaired a really successful association. So advice to your 21-year-old self uh, and um, what next? Because I know you chair Transition to Adulthood. Um, yes, yes. So that's one of the things you're doing. So I wonder if you could share that with us. Well, my 21 self, I would say, um, definitely have uh, a mentor in the organisation. You, 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 uh, <laughs> you know, or someone similar. Um, just to, to just to really give you um, um, a lot more in-depth um, understanding of the terrain you're going to be operating in. So I would have definitely have done that. Um, I, I, I know we, mentors were spoken about, but I don't think a young person from my background in London, uh, and it's quite um, humble beginnings, we really understood the importance of social capital and social networking and the wider benefits of that so I'd definitely give myself um, a mentor with that real cultural understanding that cultural competence to really um, assist me um, and then um, what's next mm. well I, I'm actually trying to finish a children's book um, yeah I, I, I'm, I'm mindful that children's books are mainly from a white European perspective yeah. less than five percent of children's books are from black and minority ethnic backgrounds and from black males is even less. So um, I, I'm really looking at that. So I've put in a couple of bids to publishers and we'll see, <laughs> see what happens. Um, but I've already formulated it. I'm, I'm doing a, a script uh, on a um, next steps, uh, you know, further episodes uh, around the small acts. So we're still working with some script writers on that. Uh, as you've already mentioned, transition to adulthood yes. uh, and that work around young people from 18 to 25 and understanding the challenges they go through and the lack of services they have and the disproportionality in the, the justice system that they suffer from. So yeah, I'm really enjoying being part of that organisation and there's various partners still doing my work with Voyage, even though I'm a patron, I'm not the chair anymore, but I was with them as recently as Friday. Uh, they're just down the road from me in Hackney. So I, I, I'm still doing my activism and advocacy work. Uh, I've got a security consultancy that's doing some international work at the moment. So I, I, I'm actually gainfully employed. Uh, I recently celebrated my 65th birthday. So wow. I, I was... Uh, I was really pleased to get that landmark. Uh, so, um, and I, I feel fitter and and and, and uh, very positive about the future. I'm not sitting back on my laurels and say, "Oh, you know, I cracked that." And, uh, success is around successes, and um, 
the work of Voyage. I, I want to make sure I've got successes in my own home. And uh, despite the challenges, you know, we've got to keep keep going, um, working with other agencies, you know, like the Bar Council and, and, and their race plan. Um, I've, I've already made it clear that I'm more than happy to assist because we all we all want to be on the right side of um, of history, and, uh, and and not just for out there. I want to be on the right side of history to my grandchildren, you know. So if my grandson or my granddaughter say, "Well, granddad, you know, what did you do? You know, um, and how are you making things better?" You know, <laughs> as they sometimes do ask me, because uh, I don't I don't want my grandchildren's generation, and they're seven seven years old and below. I don't want their generation to go through the same inequalities and injustices as their parents' generation or my generation or even my parents or, their, you know, my parents' generation. So, you know, the, the struggle continues. As long as I've got health and, and strength and that self-motivation and that dogged determination. Um, I suppose just being, being current, um, I was on Newsnight last night around this whole issue around policing and, uh, and you know, can you trust police and the, yeah. these issues that the IOPC just brought up and the whole raft of disasters from one thing or another? Um, yeah, um, I got did an interview just before this with ITV. So, you know, as long as I'm current uh, yeah, and I'm relevant and people can identify with the commentary, then, you know, I, I, I believe I, I've got a story to be told. I've got a... Um, things to be shared and yes. hopefully people can identify with them absolutely absolutely well um i'd love you to come and talk about pure law i saw you last night on newsnight um and that whole report and, and the trust issues which are um uh, ever continuing um and uh being highlighted um on the law and guidance podcast because i think your input will be quite interesting there but i'm really grateful for you joining me this afternoon um hearing your fascinating story and account and your wonderful career so thank you so much um for talking law with me sally penny well it's been a great pleasure i uh, really enjoyed the conversation and hopefully We'll, um, you know, our paths will cross again very soon. Big thank you to Dr. Leroy Logan, MBE, for talking law with me, Sally Penny, MBE, in this interview. If you would like to support Talking Law, then please do get in touch. You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram or look for Women in the Law UK. I also have two new books available which I hope might assist your careers, Talking Law and Skills and Talking Law and Careers, both of which are available on Amazon. I have a new book out called A Practical Guide to Dealing with Vulnerable Witnesses in the Criminal Courts and Beyond. You can find that available on Amazon, published by Law Brief Publishing. Do make sure you catch up with previous episodes of this podcast where you can hear my interviews with guests such as former President of the Supreme Court of England and Wales, Baroness Hale of Richmond and leading criminal barrister Courtney Griffiths QC. Thanks to our production team, Sam Walker and Michael Blades at What Goes On Media. I'm Sally Penny. Bye for now. <laughs>